Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything to do with the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kiwi, I'm a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within arguably the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottkiwi.com, on Stitcher Radio, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on anywhere you get them podcasts. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell the in-laws, tell the outlaws. Let them all know what's going on over here, but for now, enjoy the show. Guest this week on the podcast, the fantastic bass player Steve Lawson, a fellow UK man who's been really... Um, impressing the world, particularly over the internet, actually, in recent years. Uh, phenomenal player, great technique, and an all-round good guy. And good friends with Tanyal Callahan, who many of you know uh, through hearing the podcast. But before we get to that, I am joined now by the greatest saxophone player that ever walked the face of the earth. And on top of that, he's the most attractive red-headed man in the history of uh, mankind. Please put your hands together, regardless of what you're doing, for the one and only Mike Smith. Mike, how are you, sir? I'm all right. Very embarrassed, blushing, and all the rest of it after that ridiculous intro, Mr. Cowie. But there we go. And every <laughs> word of it is true. Uh, Mike sent me that intro to read out. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Mike, so how are you then, man? You've been up and down the country, as per usual, the life of a working musician. What is new? <laughs> Well, you know, yeah, loads of that. Wedding season has kicked off, Scott. Wedding season is happening now. So, basically, I'm playing for a load of people and getting ignored most afternoons uh, while I play with my duo um, as people walk down the aisle and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's all right. It's 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 a living, isn't it? But there are some amusing uh, parts of it as well. Of course. Now, um, let's not forget the album is out. So let's, it's interesting you mentioned the wedding stuff. I want to get to that in a little second. Yeah. Um, tell tell everybody about the album. For those that didn't check out the podcast where you were the guest a few weeks back, give a plug for, <laughs> give a plug for the album. Give the plug for the Okay, so I did an album in January. It came out in February. Uh, and it's called Mersey, Mersey, Mersey. And it's a load of tunes that I've written alongside my band, uh, which is called Ginger Tunes, surprisingly. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a nine-track album, and it's based on themes uh, of people and things in Liverpool. And um, so we've got things like Hitchhiker's Guide to Vizakali, Vizakali being uh, quite a famous little part of Liverpool there with a the big hospital and all that. And just, just that little um, things that we decided to, to write and record um, for uh, like a, an association in Liverpool uh, called Liverpool Jazz that kind of funded it. And um, yeah, it ended up um, sounding better than we thought, so we released it on iTunes and things, and it's doing okay. And where can everybody get it? No, it's on iTunes, but where's the central place that keeps it all together? What's the name of the website? Uh, oh, MikeSax.co.uk. That's my my website, um, or GingerTunes.co.uk. But it's all on Spotify and everything, you know. So we've actually run out of physical copies of it because I only had a short run of about two hundred done. And um, they've, just, just, they've gone now, so it's no problem. You can just go and download it and enjoy it for what it is. <laughs> Check out everyone. I am one of those people who have downloaded it. One of the many, very, very popular, like Mike says, all, <laughs> all the physical copies have gone. So 
it is in demand. Go check it out. So, Mike, you mentioned the wedding thing. Last time you were on as well, you were giving us some hilarious stories uh, off the cuff about mm. the, the weddings. I'm kind of fascinated by this, right? Because it's a band. Yeah. <laughs> the act that you've got at the moment is, is good for all the bigamists out there because when the last, last time you were on, uh, there's one person or there was... Um, yeah, it was a woman, wasn't it, that she'd been married twice within the space of like eighteen months, and you were you were, <laughs> yeah. the, you were the band for the two weddings, which was which is quite incredible. Well, we were, yeah, I was it was my sort of duo with with my um, guitarist, and we um we we just do lots of this kind of thing all the time, and it's our day job, really, I suppose. And um, yeah, <laughs> so this this lady did a bit of a double take when she walked past us at our wedding fair, <laughs> and. Um, I just I realised I recognised him, but it was only later on that I realised where it from. And uh, yeah, he was probably a little bit longer than eighteen months, probably a, a few years previous. We played it over the wedding. <laughs> we wondered whether she'd ask for a discount, you know, for, for a second wedding or anything. But, so, um, so yeah. uh, does any other any other funny wedding stories that spring to mind? This is a good topic. This I like. This is there is there any at all throughout the years? <laughs> I mean, you've you've you said the last thing you've done literally thousands of these weddings. Right, so, so there <laughs> yeah, must probably. there must be some 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 funny anecdotes that we've that have, uh, you've participated in. Well, it's always a laugh, isn't it, weddings? Because you end up getting loads of people thrown together that not really normally mix. So there's always an interesting little atmosphere in them. But sometimes this is the worst one. <clears throat> so we were playing we we're playing a wedding. I'm not going to name any names or anything. But uh, during the well, we we were playing as a drinks reception after. After the actual ceremony, and um, we we noticed as people kind of came out, we'd, we'd arrived just before they came out, so we'd missed we'd missed the whole thing. But we don't like to be in the way, so we noticed that the atmosphere was a little bit somber. <clears throat> and we were we just kind of carried on playing, and we we did all our kind of usual stuff. And uh, yeah, we basically realised after a little while that uh, the mother of the bride had died during the wedding ceremony herself. And um, we immediately regretted our choice of song, which was We Are Family. Um, so there we go. Bloody <laughs> hell. Jesus. Well, that's, yeah. uh, that's um, wasn't as upbeat as I hoped, but at the same time... <laughs> at the same time... Well, you did ask. Yeah, I did ask, yeah. And, and so... All the best to Mr. and Mrs. Jones for the previous week. I'm joking. That's not the names, everyone. I'm just having a <laughs> laugh, okay? But we're going to keep making a line. We're going to get to the interview with Steve Lawson. We're going to continue this uh, this wedding. Perhaps there's more deaths to speak of. You just never know. Um, we're going to cut to the interview with Steve, the man, the myth, Steve Lawson. And we're going to be right back with the legend that is Mike Smith right after the interview. Here we go. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast, and joining me now, fantastic bass player, Steve Lawson. How are you, sir? I'm very good, sir. Thank you. Now, um, I've watched a lot of your videos online. Um, as we, we said earlier when we were emailing back and forth, we've got some mutual friends, uh, Tanyo Callahan, Definity Rocks. One of the videos that I watched of yours was the masterclass that you did with Definity um, in England, I do believe. Yeah, in Kidderminster. Uh, how did that come about? I mean, it's uh, how long did you guys rehearse? Was a lot of it improvised? It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah, Divi and I first met at Nam about two and a half years ago, I guess maybe. Yeah, two Nam shows ago, so two about two years and two months. And we just she was playing. She was just on some booth somewhere, and and I was stood with a couple of friends 
uh, Victor Wooten and another friend who taught at Victor's camp, and we were chatting about divinity, and I, and I mentioned that we'd never met, and they couldn't believe it because we have so many friends in common. So I just went up and said, hi, I'm Steve. Uh, we know everybody the same, and we should be friends. And she looked at me like I was insane and went, all right, okay. So we got chatting, and then about seven or eight months later at the Warwick uh, base open day over in Germany, we were both there, and we were both sort of guests of the event, and we just hung out and chatted. And 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 uh, I mean, I've you know I've been a fan for ages. I think she's amazing. But um, yeah, we just got talking, and we started talking about improv, and and she was telling the story of how her background is was in improv. She started out playing like poetry clubs and and kind of hip hop and stuff, but like improvising bass behind singers and, and improvising words. So when she was over March 2015 in England for the London Bass Guitar Show, I saw her play with her band, which is kind of like a Rage Against the Machine kind of mm. front battle thing. But then she did this masterclass where she talked and told stories and told the story of how she got the Beyonce gig and all kinds of stuff. And I said to her after, I said, you need, that needs to be in your show. I said, but that needs to be a separate show. There needs to be a show that combines the music and the talking. They need to not be separate. And we need to do it as a duo. And she went, all right. So we then just, so it was just, it was kind of left at that. And then she was coming over in May, June to Europe to tour and had like a week off in between the first two dates. So she came over to England and we, we played and recorded for about three days. I mean, and, and half the time was playing and recording and the other half, well, we, we spent a bunch of time doing that, a bunch of time hanging out with my family, my, my wife and my son. We were, the, the four of us were hanging out. And then we were sat up to two in the morning watching hip hop videos. But we didn't really, I mean, rehearse was kind of not really the word. It was just running through stuff and getting a feel for how all the tech worked. So she's, I mean, she's a, just a fearless improviser. She just throws ideas at, at stuff and, then, and, and has this amazing command of all the stuff that's going on around her, whether she's looping her bass and her voice or playing program drum or playing live electronic drums on a keyboard or whatever. So we get to throw ideas back and forth. And, uh, and so we would have loose sketches. I mean, that was based on that, that whole improv was based on a tune of hers. Um, but the rest of that show, there's like a 45 minute thing that we did just went nuts. I mean, and there were, we were just playing tunes we'd never played before and making stuff up. And it's about the best fun I've ever had on stage is playing with her. Amazing. Great stuff. That's a great, great story. Now, um, another good story that um, uh, uh, is, of course, the first time you did a solo gig, right? Now, it, was, it happened by accident, so I'll let you take it from here, okay? Yeah, I, I was in a quartet, like a kind of weird sort of uh, flamenco-Indian kind of crossover thing, and I had one solo slot, a solo tune in the set. And this promoter in London had come to one of the gigs and he came up after and said, oh man, that was great if you got a whole set like that. I just lied and said, yeah, sure, yeah, whatever. And he booked me for a gig and I went, oh shit, I've got six weeks to come up with a whole set of stuff. And that was that was how it started. It was, and that's one of the reasons why I improvise as much as I do is that is that it's like, that was where it started. Was I haven't got six weeks, I can't write a whole set of material in six weeks, so I'll come up with a bunch of things to, to work with and then just see what happens in relation to the, relation to the audience. And that's what I've been doing for the last 17 years. So that's 17 years ago. So take us way back then. How did you start? When did you start playing bass and how did that idea come about? I got a bass for my 14th birthday. I kind of, I'd already played violin and trumpet and was monumentally shit at both of them. Just awful. 
Like, like my mum was kind of got to the point where she's like, oh, well, at least the other two are musicians. You know, he's clearly the not musical one. Steve will do something else. And the kid next door, I moved from London to Berwick-on-Tweed, and the kid next door was a drummer. And so I got, and the local school teacher was selling a bass, so I bought a bass and started to make a bad noise on a bass instead of on violin and trumpet. And uh, yeah, I kind of, I took to it in, in as much as I enjoyed it, but I wasn't any good. I was, it wasn't like, I, you know, it's funny when people, if I'm talking to people about you know, playing music and they go, oh, it's all right for you, you're talented. I'm like, yeah, you kind of need to talk to my mum about that because she had five years of me being awful, like just appalling. Um, and, I, and I got into college in Perth, up sort of just north of Edinburgh, uh, on audition and did two years there, by which time, I, you know, I kind of I had some idea what I was doing. But yeah, I didn't it was know just, that. I didn't know you went to Perth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was just great. I mean, those are two amazing years because the college up there at the time was, you know, it was half of it was in an old old primary school in Scone, and you know, it was a real kind of real sort of fledgling thing. And the, the qualification was, I don't know, it was like your cycling proficiency in bass or something. It was like you got a badge to sew on your swimming trunks to say you could play bass for ten meters in a pool, or I don't know. It wasn't. I have no idea what the certificate was that I was meant to have got, but the quality, of the teaching was great. And that's why it's now a degree course, and it's and it's pretty it's pretty happening up there. But it was it was an amazing couple of years. Right. So, would you recommend that? Obviously, for for young musicians, do you recommend going the college route? Because some people just say, "Oh no, you should just get out there." But some people are 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 uh, wanting to uh, students to go down that route. What was your take on it? I, I, it's a tricky one now because of the cost. You know, if you're going to spend nine grand on your education, are you going to be better off spending that on private lessons and, and equipment? I don't know. I mean, there are, there are great courses around. I teach on a couple of them, you know, and I'm, so I'm, I'm an advocate of, of higher education as a thing, but I think you need to know why you're doing it. If you're doing it in order to try and get a job, that's ridiculous. If you're doing it because you want time and access to resources and expertise, then find a course where the tutors are making music that you want to hit, you want to be involved in that, you know, that, they're sitting in a lecture hearing somebody's take on things, that's fine. But you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of podcasts out there. You know, it's like there's a lot of ways of picking up information. But I, I mean I think there are amazing courses around. But I, I see a whole lot of people wasting their time. And a lot of it is because it's not the course's fault. It's that people have gone in going, I'm paying nine grand a year in order to get a qualification so that I can get a job. And that's 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 nineties thinking. That doesn't that hasn't been the case for about fifteen years. So you're going to acquire knowledge and experience and practice and colleagues and all of that. So all the great, I mean, because the thing about university is it's, it's, it should be like a Petri dish where you, you, know, you get thrown in and you go from being a germ into being a, a, a virus or disease or something. You know, I'm stretching that analogy a bit far, but, um, but you know, it should be time to grow. It should be time to go to shut yourself off. And if you can afford to do that, that's great. But coming out of that with 30 grand of debt, now that's that's a bit steep. I, I I make sure that you are gigging all the way through. The, the, a lot of the, I think one of the problems with students is that they see being a student as separate from the rest of their life as a musician. It's like, well, no, it's not. There's no reason why as a student you shouldn't be gigging and working and recording and you know building a portfolio of work that you can use to to get paid for because you know it's costing you a lot to be there. You start. So, I was just going to say you start building your reputation whilst at college, not after. And I've, and I've had students, I mean, and this is my thing, is I'm always trying to empower my students to, to take hold of it now and start doing things. And I had some students on an HMD course a couple of years ago who recorded six albums in the course of the year. 
and some of it was was terrible and some of it was amazing and it, but they just got on and used the college facilities and went you know what we don't need a record deal mm. bank band camp is there the internet is there we can make music and tell stories about what we're making and they did and they and they're still doing that now you know they're organizing festivals and they're an amazing bunch of creative people that's amazing so that that is that is good um that is a good a good end product of what these courses bring about using the facilities and getting so much out of it. Right. So you've, let's get past the five years of really annoying your mum at being bad on base. What happens after that? Well, I did, so I did two years at Perth, uh, left before, cause I could have done the third year and got an HND, but I met this, this Canadian gospel singer and went off on tour with him for a couple of years around Europe. And that was kind of fun. You know, I mean, it, a lot of it was showing me what I didn't want to do. You know, that was just one of, those, one of those sort of formative experiences of going, yeah, this this isn't really my bag. Um, but I did have, you know, I played a whole lot of gigs and, and I had a whole lot of fun. Uh, and then from then out, so that was living in, I moved from Perth to Lincoln in the middle of England and then moved down to London and just started doing, you know, the kind of things that used to be a session career. I was doing bits of radio work and the occasional bit of satellite TV playing, you know, kind of for whatever and recording sessions and live stuff and jazz gigs in London and weddings and all that kind of stuff. And I formed a duo with a piano player and we would do bars and restaurants and weddings and stuff. Um, but we would also, we would do a whole lot of improv within that. So we would just get to a place and as long as nobody was actually listening, we didn't bother playing standards. We just make shit up and see what happens. And so that was, I mean, that was deeply formative playing, but I also started to experiment with playing solo mainly because I met the editor of Bassist magazine, which was then the kind of sister magazine to guitarist at Future Publishing, and said, you haven't got anyone who specializes in pedals. You need, you need, you know, a pedal guy. And I'm the guy. It's my job. I was like, Yossi Hughes. Hey, he gives a job. I like neat. And, uh, and he did. And he said, you're great. Write us something. And so I hand wrote this, uh, this review of a, uh, some arcane rack mount effects thing that I had sent it to them and, and like six months later I met them at, at like the London Guitar Show or whatever and they went I said what did, did you not like it and they went yeah you dickhead you didn't even give us a return address or phone number <laughs> so, I'd, so I'd handwritten a review and just posted it to them like so so stupid I didn't even tell them you know they were like you idiot so they said yes keep writing but you need to send it like on disc or via email or whatever and I was like email that sounds amazing so, so I bought a laptop you know to the beginning of 2007 I bought a laptop and, and, and that was also when I kind of discovered the web. And so all of my nascent sort of experiments were solo based because I was then requesting gear that I could use to play solo. I got a, a Lexicon Jam Man and the, the same, le the, the Lexicon processor that I still use, the MPXG2 and started getting pedals and things. So I started to put together these little demos that I could do at trade shows for the magazine because the magazine were organizers of the show. And so there would be this big stage and I'd go and do Steve Lawson demoing the new Roland MIDI pickup and I'd get up there and play bad keyboard parts on a bass or whatever. Uh, and so, so I mean, so when I, when, when I told the guy that I only had, that I had a whole set and only one tune, I actually had a bunch of other demo rubbish that I'd done. So I had done other solo things before, but that wasn't, that wasn't of any use to anybody. But I was living in London and working in London. And so, but, so I was building this reputation. And I, my, so my last tour before my first solo gig, was with Howard Jones, who, for those who are under the age of about 35, was a massive pop star in the 80s. He was like one of the top 30 biggest selling artists in America of the decade, a huge pop star. One of the few Brits to really break through in the 80s over there. And but was big in England too, and was like a hero of mine when I was 12. So I got this tour playing bass for him, depping for Nick Beggs. 
who by that point was an old friend. Um, and uh, so I did this tour with Howard and thought, great, that's it. My session career is going to start now. Two weeks, three weeks later, I did this first solo gig. And at that point, the phone totally stopped ringing. Like nobody wanted to hire the guy that was playing solo because obviously that means I'm a terrible bass player. You know, you can't, you can't be a bass player and play solo. So I just, I was like, shit, I better do more of this solo stuff because there's no more gigs. So yeah, it just, it would literally, there's like, there's like a cutoff line of, of December 99 when all of that session stuff stopped. And so I went, okay, I'm the solo guy now. That's what I do. And so I just started booking more gigs and doing more. And, and that spun out until 2002 when I got two tours back to back. Both of them I got, I mean, I got the first one through Danny Thompson, double bassist. Mm-hmm. Genius. Yep. Danny, Danny Thompson was, of John Martin fame. That's the one. So Danny, who was a hero and a, and a friend, and I'd met him through the magazine, and, and he got me the tour opening for the 21st Century Schizoid Band, which was the original Crim- King Crimson lineup back together, but with Jacko Jackchick, who's now in King Crimson, but at that point was the singer with the Schizoid Band. And I got the opening tour with them, and the sound man on that was Level 42 sound man. And so about two dates into it, he said, what are you doing in October? I went, you know, a couple of pub gigs, but this... And he went, do you want to open for level 42? And I said, let me think about that. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so he sent my CDs to Mark and it took a while of back and forth and whatnot. And then I got, I got booked to do the, the, the first level 42 greatest hits tour. Now so, I'll, I'll cut you off the really quickly if it's all right. Cause that was a big gig for you. Cause, cause Mark King was a hero of yours, right? Um, well, yeah. I mean, he was kind of, he was, he was such a monumentally huge figure as a bass player in the eighties. And I, I had a bunch of level 42 records. I wasn't a massive fan. I mean, I kind of, it's weird listening to that stuff now because nobody has ever really sounded like that. Mm. They were kind of, they were in a thing of their own. So some of it, I kind of, I kind of listened to it going, do I like this? I don't even know. I kind of don't have a reference point for it, but they were amazing live. I mean, it was an extraordinary show and an incredible privilege to get to play with them. Um, and, you know, so I got to play, so like something crazy, like 45,000 people in a month. And I did, I'm still, as far as I know, the only solo electric bass player to do a whole set at the Albert Hall. Is that right? Is that? Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure that's true. I mean, I, you know, as far as I know, Stanley Clark, Stanley Clark did the Festival Hall. I don't think he ever did the Albert Hall. I don't think, I don't think Jacko ever did did the solo gig that big in in London. And, you know, I wasn't headlining, obviously, I've never headlined the Albert Hall, but, but, but to have done, you know, not to have been a feature spot within a, a band gig, but to have actually been my whole set. That was that was what I did, and it, but the weird thing about it was that was realizing that what I wanted to do as a musician didn't fit that context. That playing to three, four thousand people at a time was horrible, actually. You know, because you're trying to grab people's attention. That that it's kind of it's, in a sense it's it's the history of rock and roll is trying to get people's attention. But if you go back to the fifties, Little Richard was was literally a circus sideshow. Mm. He was outside a circus with a piano, trying to get people's attention, screaming at them and hollering. Rock and roll has been about grabbing people's attention and holding it. And what I've always wanted to do is play to an audience that, that were already listening. I kind of wanted to do chamber music in that way. The classical gig, there's this, this reverence. I wasn't kind of into that. I don't, I don't want an audience that are polite. But I do want an audience that care. And the level 42 audience, you know, the vast majority of them didn't. So on an economic level, you kind of go, well, great. Well, I'm playing to 3,000 people. If 50 of them like it and buy a CD, cha-ching, you know, that's amazing. But on a human level, I had to change what I was doing to make it fit. I had to shorten all the tunes. I had to play everything slightly faster. I had to make them a bit more poppy just to just to keep people's attention. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. There were enough people doing 
kind of pop jazz kind of stuff. And what I was listening to was the the and talk talk and David Sylvian and kind of grown up eighties pop stuff. You know, the storytelling. The Blue Nile became a huge obsession of mine. But I, I wanted to tell stories with it, and that took a much more intimate relationship with the audience and a much longer time frame. It wasn't playing three-minute pop tunes to, to a, a bunch of people who had shown up to see a Level 42 Great Sits gig who were there for nostalgia. They weren't there to, to engage with me as an artist. Right. I was just entertaining them. So that was kind of a weird revelation because at that point I could have, I could have gone that route. I could have gone, right, I need to do this pop thing and do it well and become the stunt bass guy and kind of go and do that. And I, yeah, I decided not to. I kind of went, nope. If, you know, if, if some, I think if I got offered another tour like that without me doing anything about it, I'd have probably done it. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I could have pursued it, and I, but I never rang. I didn't ring the promoter and say, can I have another one at all? I just went, no, I'm leaving that. I want to play to an audience that I can see and talk to. Right, so an intimate setting is much better for your solo stuff then, essentially. Having not yeah, been- yeah. And it's 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 a good uh, it's a good way to learn that having experienced the role of a hall and everything to learn. That. Do you know what this isn't quite what I want to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I you know I don't want to disrespect that experience because it was an extraordinary one, and I'm I'm still very grateful to Mark for giving me the opportunity. I saw him recently. He was playing the um, Jack Bruce tribute gig at the Roundhouse, yeah. and he was he was outrageously good. I mean, it was he was the perfect person for that gig. Mm. And we had a, we had a lovely chat at the after show, and it was kind of nice to see him and nice to kind of you know touch base after all these years. And and I know, and I thanked him again because it was it was an extraordinary opportunity. And yeah, you know, that's it's still it's still a you know a stake in the ground. In oh, it's amazing. It's an amazing achievement. It really is. So uh, talking of solo stuff, talking of collaborations, who would you like to collaborate with that you've not had the opportunity to do so thus far? Has anybody spring to mind or any bands? I, there's, there's a few. I mean, there are uh, there are a couple of. I mean, because I love working with singers. Um, I have, I've just been co-writing with Tanya Donnelly from Belly and Throwing Muses, um, and that was great fun. And I've worked with Brianna Corrigan, who was the original singer in The Beautiful South. She and I have done, we've done stuff, and I want to do more with her. But I, So I love working with singers, so I'd love to work with Paul Buchanan. I mean, Paul Buchanan would be way up on my list. And Katie Tunstall, I think, who you've had on the show, I think. Um, Katie is, I think, is an extraordinary songwriter and performer. I mean, just, like, she's, she's our... She will be our Joni Mitchell. I think she's an amazing artist. And so I'd love to work with her because I've got friends who work with her and they go, yeah, it's great. It's fun. And so, but there are, yeah, there are a number of people. Vernon Reed from Living Colour. Yeah. He and I have talked, he and I have talked about collaborating and hopefully that's going to happen this year. Um, I have a, a side project with Reeves Gabrels and Jason Cooper from The Cure. So Jason's the drummer, Reeves is the guitar player that used to play with David Bowie as well. And we have a quartet with a trumpeter called Ian McGowan which is kind of 70s miles kind of improv spacey stuff. And that's enormous fun. So I want to do more of that. So, I mean, I've, I've got to play with a lot of my favorite musicians already. David Torn, I guess, is on that list as well. He's a film composer from the States and guitar player. But uh, yeah, but I, I know most of them. I mean, this is the thing that most of the, most of my, my dream collaborators I've either worked with or I'm in the process of arranging to work. With. I feel very, very lucky to have, to have got to that place. I don't take it for granted at all. So lastly, let's get some plugs out of the way. The war you're part of the Warwick gang. Um there's a lot of them. Daniel Callahan or are you are you involved in the are you you were at the Warwick base camp, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kinda interesting. I mean the Warwick thing is is fascinating because they don't 
they they do this big base camp, this open day, and they invite players who don't play Warwick instruments. They invite people who are just, just so they can throw this big party. And it's you know, I mean, on a marketing level, it's a bit, it's a stroke of genius that for that weekend, everything in the world of bass is people are talking about Warwick. You know, and it's and it's it's all these other players like me and and Victor Wooten, who's not a Warwick player, and you know, there's a whole bunch of Chuck Rainey and a whole bunch of other people who don't have them. But who are there as guests of Warwick, and so you know it's 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 a very, very generous thing for them to do to fly us all out to to Germany. But I've I've met some extraordinary people through that. I mean, you know, my friendships with Divinity and Tanya O'Callaghan and Scott Reader, the bass player in Caius, who's a remarkable man. Lise Glar, who's been a friend for years. So I get to go and hang out with all these amazing friends in in Germany once a year. I mean, that's assuming I'm going to be invited back this year. I don't know if I will or not. But um, they're, they're, they're in a, there's, they have a remarkable roster of artists. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's, it's one of the fun things about being a bass player. We're, we're an interesting breed. We make friends with one another quite easily. We're not a competitive bunch as, uh, on the whole. And so any chance we have to get together like that. I have, I have a, a thing that I organize with two mates, one who's from San Francisco and one from Holland, called imaginatively called The Breakfast Club. And we arrange this breakfast for, for, for people in our, in our musical world. Uh, whenever there's a gathering like that, so whenever at the NAMM show in LA or the London Bass Guitar Show or Frankfurt Music Mess or whatever it is, we get together a bunch of really interesting, lovely people and we kind of curate this, this breakfast soiree. And uh, yeah, and we, we looked around us, looked around at the London show recently and went, we're really good at this. We, 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 we've collected together a really extraordinary bunch of people. And, and this happens a lot. I kind of look around me and go, you know what? I don't, the playing music bit is brilliant, but the human beings that I've managed to kind of, you know, I've managed to, to, to collect along the way are some, it's, it's, yeah, I pinch myself and feel really lucky. Excellent. Well, listen, thanks very much for joining us. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, the only man walking the face of this earth that has played a bass <laughs> solo gig at the Royal Albert Hall. And if you're not impressed by that, you're not human. Steve, thanks very much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's a real pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much. Thank you very much once again to Steve Lawson. And you can check out Steve all over the internet that we said there. Uh, YouTube him. The one that's, uh, if, the, the, if you just search Steve Lawson at YouTube, the first video that comes up is my personal favorite, right? I don't want to say too much about it and spoil it for you. Just go check it out. Joining me again, Mike Smith. The legend that is, the greatest saxophone player that ever walked the face of the earth. Mike, how are you? should stop saying that. I'm all right. That's Michael Breck talking about. You're getting me mixed up. I think you should uh, put that on your business card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not Michael Brecker. Dot com. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. So listen, answer me this, Mike. What has, been the, what has been the most memorable interaction with a drunk whilst you're playing at a wedding? Well, this happens quite regularly at weddings, obviously. Um, but just people trying to grab your sacks. And I wish this, this was like once or twice, but this happens like on a monthly basis. And this you know, is not a euphemism. I've been playing. No, they just literally, yeah, when I say sacks, I mean S-A-X, not S-A-C-K-S. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a different, that was a different kind of gig. We don't <laughs> do them anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, um, this happens loads where people just grab you, grab your sack, grab your horn, grab your hooter. And, and, you know, you might be playing and, and, you know, they just think that they want to have a go. And they just literally have a go. <laughs> they literally grab it. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, usually it ends in, uh, you know, a, 
a short and sharp push off the stage, and then they're gone. <laughs> how, how annoyed do you get when people ask you to play Careless Whisper? Uh, do you know, that very seldom happens. It's always Baker Street. But what amuses right, me about right. Baker Street is pe- people people get Baker Street. Someone actually asked me recently if I would play Bacon Street. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you can't get it right. Definitely not. <laughs> but no, of course, we do play these tunes because they're like famous favourite saxophone tunes, I mean, everyone everyone identifies. A lot of brides that have booked me to play, that's what they want, you know what I mean? So who am I to deny them of, of those tunes? But, you know, there we go. Do you ever uh, witness a lot of the um, the the brides, jealous brides, uh, in tears at the end of the night? Or is that, is that, a, is that a regular occurrence at these weddings? <laughs> not, not, uh, not really, no. <laughs> not as but much you as you'd you like. Know, you didn't know that. <laughs> Oh, this is dark, isn't it? No, no. Um, <clears throat> there was one particular uh, wedding that I wasn't actually directly involved with, but a friend of mine's band was was playing the wedding, and the groom had decided that he was getting really, uh, well, he was really drunk by the end of it. And let's let's just assume there was probably some class A's involved as well. And um, <clears throat> he was he had an argument with the bar bartender about the tab. I don't really know the ins and outs of it. Anyway, so he decided that he was going to basically. Uh, set fire to the venue and he proceeded to go to a different wing and literally um, set fire to curtains and all sorts and this venue um is is now okay but it took a it took a long time for it to get kind of uh, back to where it was and it was a it's actually where they filmed robin hood prince of thieves and some people might know that venue but that happened i think about two and a half years ago Jesus. and uh yeah so there we go hashtag scouse weddings there we go. <laughs> There's got to be, I think you should set up a website for that and they just all hear all these funny stories. I don't know. It's, I, yeah. it's, it's just, it's a very interesting topic. There's, you know, you get deaths in one hand, you get fires in the other. It's, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's the best and worst of, of life, isn't it? Webbing sometimes. That's it's, a good point, eh? Yeah, it is. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's action packed, man. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get Mike back on because we're going to get Mike back on. This is going to be a regular feature. I think we said this the last time, and there you go. We've, we've kept it up. We've kept our promise. Mike, so um, as we record this, this is – well, I'll let, I'll let everybody into a little secret. We're recording this the day before it goes out. So we're recording this on a Wednesday, and it's uploaded on the Thursday. What have you got planned for this coming weekend? you get any gigs? What's, what's going down? This week, it's Cream Classic. So um, there's a big, famous club in uh, in Liverpool called Cream, and uh, we're doing – all those hits uh, from the 90s that it was kind of in, in its heyday with the Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra so it's like a 100 piece orchestra plus me and my good friend Richard and we're playing synths and the and I'm doing the alto sax parts on top of an orchestra so that's our main focus this week there are of course some weddings in fact this weekend but that's our our main uh, our main thing and they're doing that in the Anglican Cathedral in Liverpool um, on Friday and Saturday 15th and 16th of April Mike Smith in the house for the intro and the outro. Big thanks to Mike for, for chiming in this week and a huge thanks to Steve Lawson too. Once again, podcast available at scottkiwi.com. You might well know that because that may be the site you're listening to or you might be listening on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio. Please rate, review, subscribe once again. Tell a friend, tell an enemy and keep up to date with everything Steve Lawson, with everything Mike Smith and a shout out to Nora Germain uh, who's here in spirit but not here in voice or uh. person. 
Um, she's away on holiday, getting pissed on a beach, and she might be back next week. We might have Mike back. We might have Tanya back. You just never know. And that's a cliffhanger for you. You'll just need to stay tuned. But I can <laughs> tell you that next week the guest is Don Landes. Right, fantastic singer-songwriter from America. The interview's already been recorded. There's a little insight for you. It's absolutely brilliant. Mike, thank you very much, sir, and we will see all you guys next week. <laughs>